As you heard earlier, we're in this Advent season called God Made Low. This is the time of year every year where we slow down and we do the candle lightings and the readings and just reflect on the coming of Christ, uh, his first arrival, and of course, we look forward to when he will return again. And our theme this year, God Made Low, is all about uh, God in heaven, almighty God uh, taking on uh, the lowliness of our humanity and being born as a human being and, and walking among us. It's the doctrine of the incarnation, God in the flesh, that's so surprising, so shocking, and we're going to just spend some time exploring how often God's plan and his power to us looks rather obscure or weak or confusing or small even. But at Christmas, we remember the gospel is not just for the lofty, it's for the lowly. So we we heard the text read aloud earlier, but we're going to read it again. So would you hear the word from Luke chapter 2? It says this, we're starting in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So there we have it. The Christmas story. The events of that first Christmas. Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem, a story that we know so well where Jesus was born and laid in a manger. But realize as we look closer at some of the details, so much of the story just doesn't quite add up or it doesn't look the way that we would expect it to. And so I want you to notice with me just for a few minutes some of the surprises. We'll start by looking in verse 5. Joseph, along with everyone else, had to travel to register in his hometown of Bethlehem or where he was born and so he traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem we read in verse 5 he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child okay there's the first kind of surprising detail that you heard about if you came through and saw us these past few nights as we were telling the story here in the stable with the manger Mary and Joseph had not yet been married and yet she was pregnant. Now, we read earlier, this, of course, was by the Holy Spirit, a true miracle. But those around her uh, didn't necessarily believe that because for uh, ancient people, as today, there's one way pregnancies happen. And so if Joseph wasn't the father, then who was? And either way, it looks like the result of sin. It looks like some kind of scandal Uh, Something had taken place there that brought potentially shame upon Mary. And so we have this young, likely poor, 
soon-to-be mom in the first century. In, in Judaism, again, this would result in probably rumors. Uh, she'd be socially suspect. And so right from the get-go, we have this morally questionable cloud of suspicion surrounding the story where some would look at mother and child with a side-eyed glance. We read on, look at verse 7. It says, she wrapped him, baby Jesus, in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's the next surprising detail. The Lord Jesus was born and laid in a manger around animals. See, the town of Bethlehem likely uh, would swell in population and be overcrowded because of this registration that people had to travel for. And so Mary and Joseph likely culturally would have traveled and sought to stay with family or friends in a guest room, uh, some kind of proper accommodations. But we, of course, read there's no room for them, no comfortable guest room, no room at the inn, we could say, no resort amenities. And so the one whose birth is proclaimed by angels and celebrated in heaven his first bed is a manger. It's a feeding trough for animals. No proper lodging. He's next to Bessie, the village cow, who's probably making all kinds of noise. A few other animals nearby with all the smells and the mess that that would bring. I mean, compare that to how world leaders travel today. How important people travel today. Goodness, how normal, like, average Joes travel today with hotels, comfort, some kind of security, safety perhaps. But here we don't see glamour. We see the exact opposite. And it's not exactly the neat, polished, put-together little scene that our nativities and our homes so often depict. Thinking again, maybe next year we need to come up with a nativity scene that is scented <laughs> and has a place for animal droppings, or even in here, some of the goats to come in and do their business. I'm not trying to be crass. I'm just saying, historically, that's what would have been around. And so maybe we, you know, like, what is going on? We did a realistic nativity this year, we could tell people. Humble beginnings. So we have an unmarried, soon-to-be mother. We have a baby in a manger. Next, we hear this angelic pronouncement, but look who the message arrives to. Verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So Jesus, the Savior of the world, is born, and the first to hear about it are shepherds who, again, would be looked down upon by cultural elites and loathed by religious folks. They weren't viewed as trustworthy or high on the social ladder or upright. Oftentimes their testimony in court wouldn't even be trusted. And so <coughs> these are not the movers or shakers of the day. These aren't powerful people. These aren't people with social influence. And so before the magi or the wise men or the kings from the east arrive with their gifts of royalty, and their worship, we first on the scene have lowly shepherds. So put it all together. The pregnancy, no proper room, manger for a bed, 
shepherds arriving. Think about it. If this was the most momentous event in all of history, the God of heaven coming to walk among us, a royal visit, you could say, coming to save us, wouldn't we expect something a little different? Wouldn't we expect it to be a little more recognized, a large security detail, maybe? Alert the media, a press secretary going in advance, spread the word in palaces, uh, nation and worldwide. Or maybe at least a socially acceptable uh, birth story and set of parents or a comfortable, safe, warm home. Some kind of recognition from those in power. Instead, we have a humble Manger, a baby born near animals with none but lowly shepherds to witness. So we have to take a moment, digest all that, and try to figure out what do we do with that? What is God trying to tell us through these truths in his word? I think there's three takeaways. There's more than three, but I'm going to give you three today. Okay, Uh, First, let's look at Mary. In verse 5, again, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. I think a lesson we can learn from Mary is this. Don't underestimate what God can do with your surrendered life. Again, don't underestimate what God can do with your surrendered life. Here's what I mean. Before Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem, an angel appeared to Mary and told her what was to come in Luke chapter 1, how she would uh, give birth to a son and he was to have the name Jesus. And she grapples with this amazing announcement and there's a little bit of back and forth with the angel. But then ultimately she says, do you remember her line in verse 38 of chapter 1? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So Mary, no doubt, uh, probably afraid, probably confused, probably full of questions, ultimately still surrenders her life and her plans to the Lord and says, may your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, okay, like count me in. I'm on board with the plan, even though the assignment would mean scrutiny upon her life. Cultural assumptions. Going forward, she would probably be known by those around her as one who bore an illegitimate child. It could mean disgrace. It could mean gossip. And knowing what she was getting herself into, she still says, I am the Lord's servant. It's it's a beautiful heart posture modeled for each of us, hopefully, to reflect as well. Pastor Tim Keller reflects on this and he writes, anybody who wants to become a Christian must basically do the same thing as Mary. Christian faith is not a negotiation, but a surrender. We all essentially are called to the same sort of surrender that Mary showed, saying, I am the Lord's servant, and so Lord, I will come to you on your terms, not on my terms. Not uh, with a high hand to negotiate some kind of deal here before you, but to accept your terms and to surrender fully to the Lord. I mean, isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? 
Help us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? That's the heart and posture of a Christian. Lord, your will, your ways, always. Trusting that, God, your plan for my life is better than my plan for my life. Now, that's easier said than done. Amen. Amber and I were talking with some of our dear friends from Colorado who were in ministry there, and they told us about a man in their church that they were discipling, and he was bringing these questions to them, and he really um, honestly and with great transparency told them, hey, I look at my life, and I realize that my main motivation, he said, is to make money and have a comfortable life for my family. Like, that's the primary drive in my life. If I look down to the bottom of my heart, that's really what motivates me. Money and comfort. And I think we can agree that uh, having money is helpful and not necessarily a bad thing. And wanting our families to be comfortable is not necessarily a bad thing. And yet he realized that his priorities were out of order. And rather than a posture of, Lord, whatever you say and wherever you take me, I'm yours, there was some reservation. And he said to our friends, I want to treasure Jesus and love him more than my money. And so he was wrestling with that question of surrender. Honestly, if we're honest, uh, there's a question of surrender that we all can relate with. Whether it's our money or our time or our comfort or the decisions that we make, wrestling with questions of surrender. Lord, what would it look like if I were really to say to you open-handed, Lord, it's all yours. Use me. I'm your servant. Your will, your ways. May your word and your ways be fulfilled in me. And so to this end, maybe a prayer that we can start praying. We talked about this prayer a few weeks ago that we can maybe teach to our kids, but we could start to pray it as well. A simple prayer where we say, Lord, show me your will for my life. It's a simple prayer. But if we learn it, we can say, Lord, show me your will for my life. And then, the fun part, we each start to see what the Lord stirs in our hearts. And what doors he opens for you. And what opportunities he presents you. And how he, by his spirit, leads you. And then, the hard part of being willing to surrender to him. Even if his plans and his promptings seem a little odd or a little confusing the math on them don't quite add up. Because think again about this, this message to Mary. God's plan for salvation. Mary, I know you're poor. I know you're uneducated. I know because of this plan you're probably going to be an outcast in many ways. But I want you to raise the Savior of the world. Seems by human logic... Um, and wisdom, that that's not exactly a great plan, and yet that's exactly the plan that God had prepared. And so similarly, God's plan for your life might be difficult to comprehend, or perhaps you look at what you have and where God has placed you and say, God, this doesn't feel like much. I look at my life, my social location, my story, my gifts, my influence, and it seems maybe unimportant. But Mary teaches us, don't underestimate what God can do with your surrendered life. 
Let's talk about the shepherds a little bit too. Verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Again, shepherds were not people of social standing. Remember, they were not educated, not powerful, no pretense here. And what I love so much about the shepherds is a few things we can learn from the shepherds. One of them, just kind of like a side note, but I'm going to make it a, a talking point here, is that they're just going about their business. You notice that? And, and God found them. Okay, so they're just, verse 8, they're just watching over their flocks at night. Uh, they're just on the clock at work, basically. Uh, and an angel of the Lord appears. And so I think we can learn from this uh, that we should not underestimate God's ability to find you. Think about that. Don't underestimate God's ability to find you. It, in our social media crazed world, we are so caught up in self-promotion and things being big and fancy and polished, or we think that in order to be used by God, we need an audience or a platform or put our name out there and really become a mover and a shaker. We need recognition in order to be used by God. <coughs> and yet here, we have lowly shepherds who honestly don't really seem to be looking to be used by God, right? They're just, what are they doing? Going to work with, with some a little uh, espresso for the night shift, caring for the lambs that were to be born for sacrifice, perhaps. And God finds them. And now they're part of his story. So, don't get me wrong, there, there's something to be said for taking risks and trying new things and stepping through doors that God opens for you that are exciting, no doubt. But most of life, most of life is about the ordinary things. Clocking in and clocking out at work each day. The unseen faithfulness that we're called to. In fact, do you remember the story back in the Old Testament uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16? David is anointed to be the next king. And Samuel is sent by God to anoint the next king. And so God tells Samuel, hey, I want you to go, and the next king is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel goes, and he finds Jesse, and he's like, hey, Jesse, are your boys around? And he's like, yeah. He's like, bring them out. I've got to talk to them because I want to anoint one of them king. And so Samuel, or excuse me, so Jesse's like, okay. And he brings out seven of his sons. Look at these strapping lads. Surely one of them is going to be the next king. And Samuel looks at them, and one by one, no, no. No, 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 no. All the way down the line, none of them. He's like, do you have any other sons by chance? And Jesse says, well, actually, yeah, there is one more. He's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him in. And he arrives, and God says to Samuel, that's the one. And he's anointed king. I love that story because, again, we shouldn't underestimate God's ability to find you. David wasn't even in the meeting. He wasn't even invited to the table when they were going to say, hey, let's anoint the next king. He's out in the field. He might not even know it's going on. And yet the Lord knew the one whom he had chosen. 
God knew where he was. He saw him and he found him and he brought him and said, this is my guy. Don't underestimate God's ability to find you. Even in obscurity, even when you're not invited to the table, you're not in the room where the decisions are being made, don't worry. God knows his plans for you. And so like the shepherds here in Luke chapter 2, God chose to use them. They're out watching over their fields by night and an angel appears to them and then they went and met, uh, shared the message of Jesus with others. And so if something has your name on it, God will find you. You don't have to stress about missing it. And so in the meantime then, there's so much to be said for ordinary daily faithfulness. Serve the Lord where you are. Go to work. Work the night shift if you have to. Love your family. Take care of your kids. Be generous in your community. That's where most of life is. Embrace what God has already given you to do. And when or if the time comes for a new assignment, don't underestimate God's ability to find you. He will. All this, I think, sort of leads up to the final, and I think maybe the main point, the biggest takeaway from the text. And it comes with the announcement from the angels. Look at verse 10. It says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be great joy for all the people. For today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So, here's the message of Christmas. Good news. Great joy, a Savior has been born. Related to this is the takeaway. Don't underestimate the depths of God's grace. Don't underestimate the depths of God's grace. I want you to think about the grace that we all truly need. Because we realize in this text that we, humanity, needed a Savior. That's what the passage says. A Savior has been born. We needed God's grace, the gift of salvation. And this is in contrast to what so many of us believe today. Actually, many in the ancient world thought that they could uh, pursue justice or clean things up on their own. And so we needed some kind of military power or military might, and we'd be able to put things to right. Like, we have some problems, sure, but it's like, you know, a wicked king over there, or some oppressive military power over here, and so we just need some strength to fight off the bad guys, and we're the good guys. And so if you realize, if that's the way you look at the world, that like, we're mostly okay, and we just need, you know, some kind of military hero to clean things up, um, that's not really grace, right? We just need uh, some strength and power, and we can fix it. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys over there, and so we just need to fight off the bad guys, and we'll fix the mess of the world ourselves, right? Uh, in fact, a New York Times article kind of captures some of this thinking. Uh, recently, it said this in the New York Times, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Think about that. It sound, that sounds nice. Hey, love, unity, peace. This is probably the way most people in our world would think about Christmas, those who aren't believers. And yet, look at the key operating words. We will be able to 
put together a world of unity and peace. Here's what Christmas is about. Love, and we can figure it out. We, you know, out of the goodness of the human heart or whatever, um, unity and peace, we can build it. We can fix the mess. But the message of Christmas, if you think about it, and if you look at the message of the angel, is the exact opposite. It's not that we can put together a world of unity and peace on our own, and we can figure it out. We can save ourselves. Christmas actually is the evidence that we couldn't put the world to rights on our own. That we needed help from outside of ourselves. We needed a savior. We needed to be rescued. We needed a hero to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not just to come and fight off the bad guys or the Romans, but to save us from our sin. And it's interesting, if you look at the start of Luke chapter 2, we didn't read verse 1, but verse 1 talks about Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor who's in power at the time, the one who uh, caused the census and set these events in motion. And so in chapter 2, there's this contrast between Caesar, representing worldly power and wisdom and a certain kind of king, contrasted with Jesus, the baby in the manger. A very different kind of king. And so Jesus' birth shows us that our biggest problem, it's not out there. It's not that we're mostly okay. We can save ourselves with a little help. No, it's we need to be rescued. We need to be saved from our sins and ourselves. And it's not our own morality or creativity or strength. Sometimes we come to church and we think, man, uh, I come to church so I can learn the right hoops to jump through, and then I jump through those hoops so that I can earn salvation myself, like clean myself up. And again, the message of church and of the cross is the exact opposite. It's that we couldn't clean ourselves up. We needed a hero, a rescuer, a savior, and that savior has been born, and his name is Jesus. So don't underestimate the depths of God's grace. It's all grace. We needed to be saved, but lastly, the, the question of how deep God's grace is gets at the question of who can be saved? Who is this for? And how much grace is there for us? How deep is God's grace? Is it like, hey, we do, you know, 80 to 90% of the good works, and then God sprinkles like a little grace. He like sneezes a little grace on us, and then we make it into the kingdom. No, thank you. Hey, yeah, thank you. Now we see the depths of God's grace in that salvation is it's offered to, to all. The manger, the shepherds, the scandalous pregnancy, the obscurity in the text. Think about it. God wants us to see that the message of the gospel is not just for those that seem to have it all put together or those who seem morally upright or those who seem to be mostly good people and just need a little sneeze of grace to get in, that sort of thing. The gospel is for those the world normally counts out. It's not just for the lofty, the powerful, the morally upright, the put together, the popular, the celebrated. God's grace and invitation is extended to everyone, to whoever would believe. And maybe you've heard that line that says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
that we, no matter how important or polished or righteous we think we are, we all need a Savior, and we all come to Christ the same way. And that's just in humility, offering nothing and receiving his salvation through faith as a gift. The reality is that we need Jesus on our best day as much as our worst day. The best of us need Jesus just as much as the worst of us because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But the good news of the gospel is that God is rich in mercy and his grace is deep and wide and he offers salvation and forgiveness to whosoever would come to him, even lowly shepherds. And if you, if you read church history, you look at one of the most remarkable facts of the early church is its diversity. And how for the first time you see rich and poor worshiping together and slaves worshiping with the powerful and prostitutes and preachers uh, united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there's this remarkable centrality of grace in the message of Christmas. That God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to save us. And so it's really not how, about how good or moral we think we are. None of us deserve it, but all of us can receive it through simple faith in Christ. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Lord Jesus, we thank you for a time to worship you this morning. And thank you for the truth of your word and your birth, that Lord Jesus, you are the Savior Help us hear your voice. Help us trust you. Help us bow down and worship you. And remember uh, your grace. And that we didn't need to just be cleaned up a little bit or helped out a little bit. We needed to be rescued from sin and death. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.